0: Welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy, the podcast that empowers you to transform life's challenges into opportunities for personal growth and healthier relationships. We're your hosts, Tim and Ruth Olson, licensed marriage and family therapists and trauma experts.
1: As experienced therapists with backgrounds in addressing trauma and mental health disorders, we believe there is hope and there certainly is healing.
0: We've spent our lives supporting people through the ups and downs, and we want to share these insights with you. Together, we'll unravel the layers of personal growth healing from trauma, and building healthy relationships. Each week, we'll bring you engaging conversations, expert insights, and practical strategies to help you heal from the past, foster healthy communication, and develop enduring love.
1: This podcast is your guide to transforming adversity into triumph, healing wounds and past trauma, gaining wisdom and insight, and creating meaningful, fulfilling connections. So if you're here to heal, to better understand yourself or your relationships, You're in the right place. So sit back, get comfortable,
0: bring your trauma and your drama,
1: and let's start healing.
0: Welcome Welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome back to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy podcast. We are so glad that you're here with us today. If you've been following us, you know that this month is our one year birthday of the podcast, and we just celebrated our 100th episode. So today is episode 101. So this month, as we celebrate our one-year birthday or anniversary of having the podcast, we're going to do three weeks of giveaways. So I really hope you join us in the Facebook group so you can be a part of this. So for the next three weeks, each giveaway will run from Monday till Friday, and then we'll do the giveaway on that Saturday. So we have one giveaway going from September 11th through the 15th, We have another giveaway going from the 18th to the 22nd, and the third giveaway will be from the 25th to the 29th, and that's the week of our one-year anniversary. So hop over there to the Facebook group, and you can see all the details there.
0: So for this week, we're going to be talking about coping mechanisms. Today's podcast is going to center on harmful coping mechanisms, and then our next one is going to focus on positive coping mechanisms. And when we're talking about coping mechanisms, the idea is this is how we manage our emotions, and we definitely could do those in healthy ways and unhealthy ways. So for today, we're going to explore 10 unhealthy coping mechanisms that people pretty regularly employ in their lives. The first coping mechanism is substance abuse, whether it's alcohol or illicit substances or abusing prescription substances. Substance abuse as a coping mechanism, I think, is very alluring because it's very effective at the point when you're using it. If you're not feeling good and you drink a little bit or you take some drugs, it has a relatively immediate alleviating effect from how you're feeling. Now, the major problem with using any type of illicit substance in order to manage or cope with your feelings, it is so much easier than healthy coping mechanisms. And the kind of insidious part about this is that eventually you need to take more and more of the substance in order for you to get a similar effect. And depending on the substance you're using, The more you take, the more damage you might be doing to your body. And even if you're taking some type of substance that doesn't have a major negative physical toll that it's bringing about on you, it is going to have a major psychological effect where you might not be able to live or operate in your regular everyday life without using that substance. Because what really happens is that you get this big backlog of these negative unresolved emotions because every time you felt bad, you started running to the substance. And so I always like to tell people, if you're going to drink or you're going to use any type of substance, you never want to use it as a way to cope. You might want to use it in a situation where you're trying to have fun or something like that. But if you're ever using any type of substance, you want to make sure that you're not using it as any type of coping skill, because that is really a downward slide that's going to be very hard to get away from. Because when you get into it, again, it's just so much easier to use than any type of a healthy coping mechanism. And then what happens is as you use it longer and longer, you start losing more and more ability to do healthy coping mechanisms.
1: And I think that this also has a relational effect where if you're using substances and your partner does not like it, or they begin to get concerned about how you're using these substances or how often it can begin to cause problems in your relationship. And then from there... That could lead to you beginning to hide using substances, and then if your partner finds out, they feel betrayed, and that's another layer that's on there, and then you hide it some more, and then maybe you start feeling guilty. And so because you're feeling guilty and these other negative emotions, then you start to use even more, and so it definitely is a cycle, and it can impact your relationship negatively.
0: Oh, for sure. And I think work is another place where people can run into problems where then they have to start using the substance at work in order to cope with the stresses of work. And then you might get caught and then you might get fired from your job. So there's a whole cascade of events that can happen if you really get into using substances as a means to cope with your emotions.
1: Number two is self-harm. And there are a lot of different ways that people engage in self-harm. And there's also a lot of different reasons. But it's definitely not a healthy coping skill for you to use. So some of the reasons that people choose to use self-harm is for emotional regulation sometimes, where they just want that temporary release of intense emotions. Like they're just so sad or so angry and frustrated. And so some people use self-harm to release some of that. And that release really can be a true chemical release where they experience endorphins, they have dopamine that's released, serotonin, oxytocin, adrenaline. All of these different chemicals can provide temporary relief or a momentary feeling of calm. But over time, your brain might begin to associate the relief from emotional pain with the act of self-harm, which potentially leads to yet another cycle that's really hard to break.
0: I think another thing that's really alluring for people about this is that when they engage in self-harm, they're trying to manage something that they haven't been able to figure out a solution to and also that they don't have control over. But then when they do that self-harm, they get a feeling or sense of control. Oh, I'm not feeling bad anymore. I now just have this physical pain, which feels much more manageable than the emotional pain that I couldn't solve.
1: Oh, definitely. Control is another reason that people might use self-harm. And so is self punishment. A lot of people feel like they must pay or they just punish themselves, where they feel like they have to offer some kind of penance for wrongdoings or the guilt that they feel. And another reason people might self harm is to communicate or express their internal pain outwardly. And sometimes this is a nonverbal way to show others that they're hurting or they're in distress, especially when you find it hard to communicate what they're feeling. And a couple other reasons why people might use self-harm is distraction. That physical pain can distract them from emotional pain, at least temporarily. And then grounding. Sometimes with self-harm, those who are experiencing dissociation and kind of feel disconnected from their bodies and their emotions, it helps them to, in a sense, bring them back to earth and make them feel more connected to their body and to reality. Those are just some reasons that someone might engage in self-harm, but it's definitely not a healthy coping skill that you want to engage in.
0: There's plenty of people who definitely, I think, accidentally over-injure themselves when they're doing it, and they either cause serious injury or sometimes death then as a result. And then also a lot of times this can leave long-term scars that people have when they're doing this. And that's a major theme with these unhealthy coping mechanisms. They almost always come with major long-term negative consequences as a result of using these, and that's why they fall under this category of unhealthy coping mechanisms. The next one we're going to discuss is overeating or starvation. Now, overeating a lot of times boils down to it's a comfort thing. I'm stressed out, I'm going to eat, and when I eat, then that helps me to feel soothed, and it helps me to escape those negative feelings. Starvation, however, on the other hand, I think a lot of times boils more down to control. If it's not just a body dysmorphic type thing, it's a this is something that I can control how much I eat when there's nothing else I can control in my life around me.
1: Number four is isolation. So a lot of times when we're struggling emotionally, we tend to withdraw from friends and family. And this creates another cycle where you don't really feel like seeing people, maybe you're feeling depressed or anxious. So you begin to withdraw from your friends and family and other things that you used to like to do. But then this can intensify your feeling of loneliness and then increase depression, maybe guilt, and make it even harder for you in the future when maybe you will see them again. Because then there's a lot of feelings that go into not seeing these people for a while. And so even though at the time you may not feel like you really want to see people, You really have to gauge, is this a healthy boundary that I know I need for me and it's a good thing and it's just kind of temporary? Or is this something that is going to cause more problems for me in the future?
0: And I think a lot of times people who do the social isolation, they feel shame or embarrassment that they're struggling and they're worried that they're going to be judged by people. And so then they just kind of go into themselves and try to deal with it themselves But that's a big portion of what having social connections are for, is for a social support system. And so you should be taking advantage of that. And if you feel like, man, nobody's going to accept me or they're all going to reject me, I would say it's definitely at least worth a try, because then you can end up feeling very supported. But then if your worst fears do come true, and then those friends or family do reject you, that's information that you need to then take and then do different life decisions with where it's like, hey... I need to work at getting additional good, healthy connections. And so that fear of being rejected, I know it's uncomfortable to be rejected, but it gives you more information by which you can try to craft a life that benefits you and that you can get support in the ways that you need. Number five is procrastination. Now, I think this is one that a lot of people use very frequently because it's an extremely easy coping skill to use. It's just in the moment when you realize there's something you need to do. Nope, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to go choose to do something more fun. I'm going to go play a game. I'm going to go watch TV. I'm going to do anything other than that topic that I'm supposed to. You may even choose to do other work over doing the thing that you're procrastinating because that is then distracting you from thinking about the thing that you need to get done. And a reason why people do that is because the task might feel overwhelming to them or they're already feeling overwhelmed before they come up to that task. And so then as a result, they want to then avoid that. But a part of the major problem when you avoid that task is that you then get this buildup of negative emotions because it hasn't been done. You're just kicking that can down the road. You're not actually alleviating or relieving yourself of any burden from procrastinating that thing. You're just allowing that burden to kind of hang over your head like a cloud for longer periods of time.
1: Oh, totally. And I've definitely experienced that where continuously putting off those tasks just increases that stress and overwhelm in the long run. And so for a long time, I would put signs up or I would say to myself, just do it now, just do it now. And even if it's setting a timer for five or 10 minutes and you start to work on it just for that little bit of time, you'll already be five or 10 minutes further than you were. But also there's a big chance that you'll just have already started it, so you're going to continue it.
0: And I think there's so many little things that we can procrastinate too. Like, just walking through the house, oh, hey, there's a hair tie on the ground. I can procrastinate and not pick that up, or I can pick it up and then just be done with it. Or something a little bit more substantial. I'd bought a life insurance policy a couple of months ago, and I knew I had printed up the papers for that policy, but it ended up in a stack somewhere, and I wasn't entirely sure where it was. And just throughout the last couple of weeks, I was thinking, man, where's that paper at? What did I do with it? But I procrastinated going through my papers just to find it. And then just today we were cleaning up a room and I was going through papers, getting rid of stuff and organizing stuff and putting away. And then, man, there it is. Okay, now I know where it is. Now I'm going to put it in my filing cabinet and now it's done. That will no longer be stealing any emotional energy from me because now that task is done. And all that time that I'd been thinking about it but not really done anything about it, that was having a negative emotional toll. Even though it was a slight one, it was still having that toll. And the more things that you have that are backlogged like that, the more toll it's taking on you overall.
1: Number six is risky behaviors. So oftentimes people will cope with these risky behaviors and they'll engage in these impulsive actions like reckless driving, unprotected sex, or gambling, and they use it as an escape. But like with everything we've talked about today, there's consequences that come along the way. And so even if in that moment they aren't really having to deal with their problems, they're creating mountains and mountains of problems that they're going to have to deal with later.
0: I think another thing that's alluring about the risky behaviors is that you get an adrenaline spike when you're doing it. And that adrenaline spike actually helps you start operating out of a different part of your brain. You're operating more out of that kind of fight or flight stage of your brain. And the information that you were worried about or that you were struggling with is stored in a different part of your brain. So it almost totally pushes that out of your mind altogether when you're engaging in these risky behaviors. But again, this is something that you have to kind of continually be doing in order to be avoiding the thing that you're avoiding. And then you're going to end up with a lot of consequences there as a result. The next one is denial. And there's a reason why the first step in AA is acceptance. Because if you're living in denial, you're pretending like there isn't a problem or you haven't accepted that this is actually a problem for you. And so you cannot make any changes in order to address that issue or to fix it. And so you're just going to continue to incur the same type of emotional relational penalties for just living in this state of denial. And this is, I think, alluring to people to be into now because when you're there, you're not having to think about really what the consequences are or trying to figure out how can I solve this problem. Or you're not having to come to terms with figuring out what behaviors you might have to change because all that can be very difficult and can feel a sense of overwhelm when you come to that. But if you just pretend like there's no problem, then that oftentimes is an easier thing to do. Just ignore that anything's wrong at all.
1: Number eight is excessive spending. And this could even be tied in with number six, risky behaviors, if you're doing this to an extreme. But a lot of times people will use shopping as a way to feel better, but it can lead to financial problems and increase your stress down the road. And even with this, there's a chemical release that happens, and you feel good when you're buying all these things. But then when that credit card bill comes, or your bank statement comes, or your spouse sees you walk in the door with tons of bags, Then
0: fun times over.
1: (laughs) Yep, then fun time is over, and you experience the consequences that come with it.
0: And it definitely is fun to shop or to buy things, or it draws in your attention when you're looking at the thing you want to get, and then you pull the trigger and purchase the thing, especially if it's like Amazon or you're getting something delivered. You get the first thing of, oh, I bought it now, I'm excited. You get the time of anticipation. And then oftentimes, especially if you buy it from something where it takes a little bit of time to get to you, you might even forget you buy it. And then all of a sudden it's a surprise at your door. And so there's a lot of excitement that can go into purchasing things. But I've definitely seen families and relationships and people just absolutely devastated by people who have used this as a coping mechanism and have been able to spend vast sums of money just trying to cope with their negative feelings. But then they're actually no further towards actually resolving those feelings. They have just been staving them off and staving them off, never actually fixing them.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of relational impacts that happen here. Maybe the partner that's not spending or the one that wants to get on a budget, they begin to feel resentful because, one, they're not on the same page, right? And so you're constantly battling this. And then, two, they feel like, I am working so hard for this and all the gains that I'm making. This other person is taking away from our family or taking away from me and all the work that I put into it. And then three, it's just like the other coping mechanisms we talked about. They can begin to hide their spending or hide the purchases that they've made. And then that causes mistrust in the relationship. And you're not growing together and you're not on the same page. And so you're definitely causing division in your family.
0: Number nine is overworking. Now, I think this is something easy for people to slip into, and I think a lot of times what happens is people who are overworking, a lot of times is because what they find is that their work life is much easier than their home life. And they find that they have figured out the formula for work, how to get rewards and praise there, but then they haven't figured out the formula at home, how to get rewards and praise at home. And so then they tend to lean into work, And then they are constantly working because this is this easier avenue for them, but then they start neglecting the other thing, which is admittedly more complicated. Your home life oftentimes is a much more complicated process than your work life, but the home life is actually where you get the majority of your positive emotional response from if you're operating in your home life in a healthy way. So there's only so much happiness and positive feelings you can get from working, but there's so much more you can get from home. It's a much more complicated ecosystem at home than it is at work. So that's why people who are workaholics or overworked, they tend to slide into that because they've figured out that formula, but can't figure out the one at home.
1: And number 10 of the harmful coping mechanisms is aggression. Taking out your frustrations on others, whether it's verbally or physically, it can really damage relationships. And it doesn't address or solve the root cause of the stress. It just continues, like all of these other coping skills, to cause you more and more problems down the road. Because maybe in that moment you feel like, I can't control my anger, and you just kind of lash out. Then you begin to feel guilty, or maybe you're even more angry because that didn't fully release all your anger. Now you have broken relationships. And then now maybe your spouse or your kids are crying in the corner and you still have to address that or that's causing you to be more and more frustrated. Or maybe you took something out on the house. Maybe you broke something and now you have to deal with replacing that or fixing that. And so I know sometimes things can be so frustrating and we can feel out of control. But it's really important to be able to manage that and find healthy ways to calm down and just get to a place where you're not going to act out and you're not going to kind of flip your lid on people in a way that when you're calm, you wouldn't make the same decision.
0: I think another reason why people use aggression or anger is because a lot of times it works. I think certain people have kind of learned that if I'm aggressive or really angry, it makes people uncomfortable, and so a lot of times people will capitulate to the angry person. I've actually seen this in sessions sometimes where I'll have a client who's very angry or aggressive, and I won't react to that, and I'll almost see the air go out of their balloon, where they almost will look at me in shock that I'm not reacting to their anger, and that I'm kind of more stoically responding to them, and then all of a sudden they go from being very angry to being much calmer in the interactions. So for people who use anger as a tool, a part of the problem with doing that is you might get people to listen and do things on your behalf right now. But a lot of times what you're doing is you're burning bridges. And you may not even see that those bridges are getting burned. Because like I said, a lot of people are just uncomfortable with confrontation. But in their mind, they're upset and angry and frustrated with you. And they're thinking about how they don't want to interact with you anymore, or how they're going to avoid you as much as they can. And so a lot of times these people who have figured out I can use this anger aggression as a way to get what I want, oftentimes end up feeling very isolated and distant from people, not because they've distanced themselves, but because everybody who has been at the receiving end of your anger tends to start walking away or trying to get far away from you so as not to be abused in that way. So we hope this episode was helpful to you guys, just being able to understand what are unhealthy coping mechanisms. And then just having that knowledge can help you to understand like, oh man, maybe I've been engaging in some of these. I didn't even realize I was doing this and it was unhealthy. And then what we're going to do and listen to this next episode for sure is we're going to be jumping into those positive coping mechanisms and what you can do in replacement of these negative coping mechanisms. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. And remember, your mind is a powerful thing.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode and found it helpful. If so, would you take 30 seconds and share it with a friend? Also, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. It lights us up to know that this podcast is helping you.
0: If you have any questions or a topic you'd like discussed in future episodes, visit our Facebook group. Just click the link in the description below. Although we are mental health providers, this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide diagnosis or treatment. If you are struggling with persistent mental health issues, chronic marital issues, or feeling hopeless or suicidal, you are not alone. Help is available. Please seek professional help or call the National Suicide Hotline at 988.
1: Thank you again for joining us on Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. Remember, there's always hope and there's always help.